Two years ago today, a violent pro-Trump mob attacked the U.S. Capitol. And to use a favorite term that all of you people really came up with, we will stop the steal. A lot of people packed on the steps now. They have pushed back the barricade, the physical barricade that was initially down here, the bicycle racks, then the barricade. It is hard to put into words what exactly we witnessed today because we have not seen this before. Thousands storming the Capitol after a rally with President Trump, during which he urged them to march on the Capitol, where a joint session of Congress was debating and working to certify the election as our democracy dictates. In response to this attack, the House of Representatives formed a special committee to investigate the insurrection. For months, the committee issued subpoenas, held hearings, and gathered testimony. And finally, just a few weeks ago, it sent criminal referrals for former President Donald Trump to the Department of Justice. Days after that, congressional Democrats also released Trump's tax returns. While it's unclear what kind of consequences Trump will face, if any, his world looks very different today than it did two years ago. His position in the Republican Party is extremely uncertain now. That's Isaac Arnsdorf. He's a national political reporter for The Post. Maybe the biggest question in politics is sort of what's going on with Trump, uh, because no one wants to count him out, but it really does look and feel different this time for a lot of reasons. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Friday, January 6th. Today, we take a deep look at the significant legal and political troubles Trump faces. My colleague Christina Quinn talks with Isaac to get the latest on where things stand and what this all means for Trump's presidential campaign. I'll let Christina take it from here. What is the significance of the release of Trump's tax documents? Democrats were clamoring for the tax return since the 2016 campaign, but weren't in a position to do anything about it until they won the House in 2018 um, and then started the process pretty quickly. Um, There's a provision where the Ways and Means Committee can obtain the taxes, which Trump fought in court all the way up to the Supreme Court. And that's why it took so long um, and was only in the final days of Democratic control of the House, that they were finally received them and released them. Right. What are your biggest takeaways from what was revealed? Confirming that he has not given as much money to charity as he's claimed, that he's paid very little in federal taxes, that he's claimed a lot of foreign income, um, including a bank account in China, which I don't think we were expecting. And that the foreign income was continuing during his presidency, which was a a constant source of controversy uh, because there's a provision in the Constitution against, uh, depending on how you read it, against presidents getting paid from overseas. And 
I mean, probably the most interesting thing that they found was not what they were expecting at the beginning, I don't think, that that the IRS is supposed to audit the president's tax returns, and they didn't do that under mm-hmm. Trump. A lot of the other stuff about what was in the tax returns, we sort of already knew from, from reporting over the years, you know, and also what's not in the tax returns. You know, there was a lot of hype about how if we only had his tax returns, that we would know what's really going on with Russia. And obviously, that's not really what's in tax returns. What story did the tax documents tell? Well, I mean, this is part of what's what's hard about tax returns. I mean, on paper, it looks like he lost a lot of money rather than making a lot of money. But, you know, some of that is what accountants do in order to offset tax liabilities. Mm-hmm. So, again, it, the, the tax returns are not actually the Rosetta Stone for his potential ties to Russia, and they're not actually, like— the complete financial story of his business. But we do know separately from the trial that took place uh, in New York, uh, where his company was convicted of fraud, um, that there, we can definitively say there were illegal business practices at the company um, around um, how they were managing their finances. I'd also like to check in on the January 6th criminal referrals for Trump. What referrals did the committee make? So the referrals were for insurrection, conspiracy against the United States, and obstruction of an official proceeding, which was for the certification of the electoral votes in Congress. These referrals are not binding. The decision on whether to charge Trump or not, or anybody else, is going to be made by the Justice Department and the special counsel in their investigation, totally separate from what Congress did. Do you expect there to be consequences for the former president with these tax documents and and the criminal referrals of the January 6th committee? Uh, if by consequences you mean criminal, you know, on the tax returns, the, the Manhattan DA already had the tax returns for at least a year. Mm-hmm. And that investigation looks like it didn't go anywhere. So probably not. On, on January 6th, the referrals themselves are are basically worth the paper they're written on, which is not nothing, but is not, you know, it is it is uh, it is not a kind of legally binding recommendation. It's just the opinion of the committee. And we know the Justice Department was already investigating the efforts to overturn the election on January 6th, including by Trump and his allies. And that investigation, since Trump announced his candidacy officially, uh, is now under the special counsel Jack Smith. Yeah, the Post has reported about how these referrals are not a binding directive for the DOJ. So it's unclear what criminal consequences Trump would actually face. But I do want to ask, even if those referrals don't go anywhere, this is still a significant move, right? Yeah, I mean, the the referrals never happened before. You know, I don't want to distinguish between the, the referrals as opposed to the contempt citations where, you know, some of uh, like Steve Bannon and some of Trump's allies weren't cooperating with the investigation. So they, Congress held them in contempt and then the Justice Department prosecuted them for that. But that's different because like Congress was a victim of that crime basically and yeah. reporting themselves as the victim. That's different from this, which is like Congress saying, we think we found a, a crime and we think you should check it out. And yeah, I mean, the the unofficial objective of the January 6th committee, at least from the perspective of the Republican vice chair, Liz Cheney, was to undermine Trump politically so that he couldn't be president again. And, you know, the the criminal referral was the cherry on top. And 
there's a lot of evidence that that goal was successful. And the public hearings that the committee held over the summer, some of which got a huge television audience, were kind of a turning point in the campaign. And that really contributed to turning a lot of moderates and independents away from Trump and the candidates who were running in Trump's image. After the break, Christina and Isaac talk about how Trump's power within his party has shifted. We'll be right back. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, deputy opinion editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. How would you describe what the last few weeks have been like for Trump? Like the last few weeks in particular? Quiet, um, which is not a place that Trump especially likes being. Uh, You know, he likes being the center of attention. And, you know, we're seeing another good example of of that this week. On Tuesday and Wednesday, we're watching the the votes for Speaker of the House. And Trump was clear that he was backing Kevin McCarthy. He made some individual calls to members. He publicly reiterated that support on Wednesday. And yet when they took the vote, uh, no votes changed from before and after Trump weighed in. Right, right. So it speaks to how he's possibly really losing his influence. But it is interesting that you said that you know, the last few weeks have been quiet for him. You would expect them to be a little bit more chaotic given the release of these, of his tax documents. Uh, But maybe that speaks to your point about how life has been going on without him and that what's happening in the House this week has overshadowed, in some respect, the release of his tax documents. Yeah, he hasn't been able to to block out the sun the way that he used to and um, command as much attention with his announcements or his provocations. And the other thing is he hasn't really left his house. Uh, he, since announcing his campaign in November, he's done public events, but they've been at Mar-a-Lago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his appearances elsewhere have been live-streamed or videotaped from Mar-a-Lago. Um, you know, there's an argument that I hear that, well, you know, it's so far ahead of the primaries that it makes sense that he's not doing a ton of public events, but that's also what it's still weird then to announce and then be quiet. Right, right. And that's not how he rolled it out the first time around. Right. Do you think the the investigation will have implications for Trump in the future? Is it premature to say that, like, this will impact his, his run? It is early, but it is definitely having an impact. We don't know 
how determinative it's going to be. But I, I, you know, what I hear from Trump's most devoted supporters is they're not paying attention to the ins and outs of investigations. They kind of see it all as politically motivated, mm-hmm. all as a witch hunt. They're tuning that out. But what you do hear more and more, including creeping in among people who voted for Trump twice, is a question about whether, you know, while they liked his presidency and they like him personally, is he the best candidate for the Republicans moving forward or is he have too much baggage? Is he too divisive? And I think that is a reflection of it sinking in how these scandals and these investigations around him are a liability. The events of this week, especially the House, um, how have they impacted Trump and his standing with the Republican Party? Trump is backing Kevin McCarthy, but the holdouts against Kevin McCarthy were, ironically, are like the Trumpiest members. But still, when Trump's calling them and telling everyone to vote for Kevin McCarthy, it hasn't moved any votes. Yeah, that's the thing that's been sort of baffling to me, is that they are they are the Trumpiest members of Congress. Many of them are. And so what does that mean? Like, what, what kind of signal does that send to him? There's this idea in the MAGAverse that you can sort of smell when Trump's heart is not really in it and it's just his advisors making him do something. And so, like, it's really McConnell or the swamp acting and, like, even and don't really listen to what Trump says. And this seems to be one of those instances where they're able to say, like, you know, yes, of course we support Trump, but he's, you know, this isn't really what Trump wants or, you know, he's just wrong about this and it's fine that he likes Kevin, but Kevin's not our guy. Huh, that's interesting. So then what's next? I mean, you, for you, it's already 2024, right? You're a political reporter. Uh, You are already sort of in the throes of campaign season um, as a journalist. What's next? Right, so we're looking for who else is going to, get into the race, what events they're going to start doing, uh, the hires that they're making in early states. And we want to get a feel for where Republican voters are now, because they're really the ones who are going to decide if Trump's grip on the party is finally actually loosening or if he's going to bounce back. Isaac, thank you so much. Thanks for for sitting down and, and, and explaining all of this. Thanks for having me. Isaac Arnsdorf is a national political reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Sabi Robinson produced this episode. It was mixed by producer Renny Svernovsky and edited by Lucy Perkins. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Ted Muldoon is our senior producer. My co-host is Martine Powers. The show is also produced by Eliza Dennis, Sharla Freeland, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnick, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, and Emma Taukoff. Sean Carter is our engineer. The post-director of audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.
The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.